You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. That's James 4. So we've been in a series that's been combing through the book of James in the New Testament. And as these things go, if we're talking about James 4 this week, then last week we talked about James 3. Just to refresh on that, we talked about the destructive power of our thoughts and words. James writes in uh, 9 and 10, some refresher, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. James is giving a sober reminder of the magnitude of our internal sins and our internal struggles with our thoughts and our words. And then in verses, this is again chapter 3 of 13 through 18, he cautions about being wise in our own eyes. He says, but if you harbor, keep, hold on to, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. And he contrasts that to wisdom that he says is from God, and he describes as peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. He ends chapter 3 with saying, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That last verse about reaping what you sow, we're pretty familiar with that turn of phrase, but in this passage, it's a good transition between the chapters here, which is why I wanted to point it out. It's a transition of how our personal unrest becomes communal unrest, how thoughts become actions, how the private becomes public, how wrong or frustrated desires that we have inside of us do ripple out to others. So in James chapter 4, we still have the apostle um, James who is a follower of Christ. He is also his brother, and he is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Christ followers. So if you're with us this morning and you are not a follower, you are off the hook. This is not a command to you, the stuff that we're going to talk about today, but I wonder if you might hear some things that might be relevant or familiar to you, and I wonder what might feel interesting, maybe intriguing, helpful, actually to all of us. So two more things to note about chapter 4 is, um, one, James is using a lot of Old Testament references here, okay? So wording, imagery, he even directly quotes it. That's that little quote in there. And the second thing I want to point about James is his tone. It's going to feel abrupt and maybe even confrontational because he is being confrontational. He is confronting these early Christ followers He's warning them. He's cautioning them. He is calling these early Christ followers to remember some truth and to take action. I think we need that remembering too. So with this in mind, let's look at our passage again. Um, I gave you a handout with it. You can also look at it on your phone or whatever. So chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, 
you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that, the jealousy, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? This is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. As such boasts, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Let me acknowledge there is a lot of text here. Okay, there's a lot of subtext here. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to dig into. And I hope most of you had the opportunity in various small groups this week to think, reflect, and discuss on the passage. I love that we get an opportunity to do that with each other as a community. And I want to encourage you after this to go back if there are things that you have questions about or that stand out to you in your own private thoughts and study, maybe in your own conversations with friends, and keep learning and wrestling with what God might be pointing to you. But for the context here together this morning, I think it's probably the most helpful to go through some of the general layout of this passage and then the, like, the big thematic elements. I hope that by doing that, it gives you the foundation to explore deeper maybe some of the verses that you feel intrigued about or maybe conviction about. All right, so let's outline the passage a bit. All right, verses 1 through 3. This gives us the root problems here, that desires that battle within you, as he says. Specifically, and remember back to chapter 3, what I just reminded us of, uh, James points out envy, which is wanting what you don't have, and selfish ambition. So that's that desire for personal achievement, um, distinction, maybe it's power. So we have these internal frustrations, these things that we're not getting, and they lead to external or communal problems. I'm wondering if you've been there. Verses 4 through 6 explain that this, this fighting, this quarreling, this, these things are not just hurtful or harmful behavior, but it's sin. Sin meaning things that separate us from God. So choosing to act out of our frustrated desires apart from God separates us from God. All right, also in verses 4 through 6, in this little chunk here, there's a lot of Old Testament references. 
with you adulterous people that he starts at. James is conjuring up um, the remembrance of the Israelites, who are God's people, who are constantly running to God and then away, and then to God and then away, and then to God and then away, as different desires sort of engulfed or overtook their faith. Have you been there? He also directly quotes here Proverbs 3.34, which is in the Old Testament, and is reminding these Christ followers how resisting God is opposing him and how it destroys relationship with him, but also that God's kindness and his mercy is felt by those who submit to him. All right, jumping down to verses 11 through 12, James cautions and recenters those who have let those frustrated desires that they have wound and separate us from each other. Specifically in these verses, he's calling out the means of criticalness towards one another, the behavior that comes from criticalness too, like slandering, he points out. Slandering is misrepresenting someone. It is demeaning someone. It is smearing each other. Or he he also calls out judging each other, negatively deciding things about each other, labeling, attributing, condemning. Have you been there? Have you felt that sting from somebody else? Have you caused that sting? Verses 13 through 16, sort of the last little chunk, Um, is not a debate about should we be planners or spontaneous as Christians, although it looks like that at first glance, doesn't it? It's also not saying we need to have a specific word track on everything that we say, but it's about a mindset or an attitude. Here he's cautioning and recentering those who detach their lives, meaning their plans, their goals, their hopes, their livelihood, from the sovereignty of God. People that detach what they're doing from their faith life, from following Christ, separating their life from the influence or dominion of God. Have you been here? Are you here with something right now? Maybe it'd be helpful to sort of synthesize this visually. I am such a visual person. It always helps me. So when you take a look at your handout, Side one, it has a little one with a circle in the top right-hand corner. If this is helpful for you, awesome. If you are like, I get it just from the text, great. Um, But this is sort of just a visual of what I just said, okay? So with these frustrated desires that we can be tempted into, wanting things that we don't have, being, um, being just hungry for more, We can respond with things like restlessness or discontentment or comparison, things like that. And then we we can start to control. Control. We can start controlling our circumstances, right, or the outcomes, or trying to. We can start to control our opinions, right, or maybe start even controlling the opinions of others so that they match ours, make ours feel more right. Maybe we start literally trying to control other people, whether that's pushing into relationship, diving in, or maybe it's pushing them away. Maybe it's using people. We can start to 
control things in our life when we have these frustrated desires. Whether it's tightening our grasp or building up walls, it's control. We're controlling. We're saying, I am in charge. I have the authority here. I have to do something. And as verse 6 points out, by calling it us the proud, all of us, it leads to arrogance. Control leads to arrogance, a smugness, a vanity, a confidence in ourself. I am in charge, maybe even more um, harmful. I am right. In verses 12, or 11 and 12, James um, calls out the arrogance of opinion. Things like critical attitude, hurtful speech, character assassinations. Do you guys know what I mean by that? So it's a difference of saying, hey, this thing happened. This person said this. They did this. That versus they are fill in the blank. It's personal. It's about their whole character and about who they are versus something that they said or did. In verses 13 to 16, James calls out an arrogance of management, I guess, for a lack of a better word here. Um, this idea that we can manage things, right? I can manage myself. I can manage my life. I can manage others. I can manage my sin. I've got it. And this, this idea of being, uh, finding safety in our plans, an illusion of security, pride, distorted perspective. Control gives us an arrogance of our opinion and of what we manage. And the fallout, James is saying, comes in, in two ways. One is way more obvious um, because it's in our face a lot of the times. And that's destruction of our interpersonal relationships. And that can feel like, wow, that's like a 10. Like that's on volume 10 for word. But it's true. He's saying it literally destroys your relationships. He is calling out that slandering, even if it's quick, even if people agree, he is slander, he's calling out that slandering, judging, controlling is more than just not great that I do that. Or, yeah, that's a little embarrassing. Or, yeah, it's a bad habit. He's saying, is sin. It's wicked. It's invalidating. It is devaluing. It is crushing. It is shattering. It is dehumanizing. Why? Because everyone else is subject at any given moment to what I feel about them or what I think about them. They have the value that I give them in any given moment. That is why it is wicked. Here's a convicting thought um, that occurred to me as I was just mulling this over with the Lord. Do you, do you want to stand up for justice, for the dignity of others? Is that, is that an issue that's close to your heart? I hope so. Here's a place to start. Choose, along with the Lord, to stop sinning against each other. Stop making excuses for being critical towards each other and controlling each other. Start there. All right, so another big fallout that James is pointing out happens as a sort of warped self-reliance. 
In this worldview, that's sort of in this little picture right here, where we are in control, we, can't, we can see life this way, where we're sort of at the center, and God is sort of in this little um, like helper bubble, if that makes sense, where he's like orbiting around us, and we can, we can lasso him in when we need him, but most of the time he just sort of floats at a distance. And this is all kinds of wrong, but the danger of thinking of life this way is that I can think then, if it's just me and it's my circle, that what I do or what I don't do only affects me. Or it only affects me and other people, but I'm okay with those consequences because I don't really like them or whatever. But verses 4 through 6 call out the truth that what we are doing is sin, and therefore, by the nature of the definition of sin, it is actively separating us from God. He's not standing on the sideline being like, oh, that's too bad. He's feeling that ouch, too. He's feeling the distance. Why, are we, why, why is this separation from God? Because when we choose to rely on ourselves, we are rejecting relying on God. Does that make sense? Have you been here? I really wonder what you might be thinking right now. Wonder where maybe flashes of your life have popped up in just different parts of this diagram. You might be asking yourself, okay, what, what's the alternative then? What better way is there than this? And you're at church, so you probably know that it involves Jesus, and you probably think that God wants you to do something differently, and he does. But with that, will you be open-minded and open-hearted to trust that what he is saying, this other way, really and truly is better? That it's accessible to you? That it's worth the incredible struggle of continually rejecting to fall into that cycle? All right, let's give some much-needed and long-awaited attention to verses 7 through 10. I am sure it has super bothered some of you that I skipped that and didn't acknowledge it. Let's go back. Seven, submit yourselves then to God. Submit, stop, yield, break the pattern. Give frustration over to God. To do that, you will need to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do you know what verses 8 through 10 are getting at here? Again, using that Old Testament language and images, James is calling for repentance. Big word, churchy word, loaded word, and yet it's as simple as this. Repentance means interchange. Usually to be motivated to change something. I mean, this is just generally true. To be motivated to change something, you need to acknowledge that something is not working, that something is wrong. And sometimes it involves a sadness or a grieving for how desperately that thing is not working, how desperately that thing is wrong. Naturally, when we notice that something is wrong, we want to fix it. So we start controlling and we start doing that self-reliance thing. I do it. 
I know you do too. And when we have and then we have all of these often legitimately unintended consequences of relational fallout with God and with other people. We seriously need to ditch our strategies for fixing ourselves and repent. Submit to God. Submit to God means to stay in relationship with God. Because as Christ followers, we absolutely believe that being in relationship with God is the best and the only place to be. That relationship with God is worth fighting for. Maybe really and truly aligning yourself with what I just said, with that belief, is where you need to start this morning. To put it another way, when you sin, when you miss up, when you miss the mark of what God asks or demands of us, do you feel regret primarily for how it separates you from God? Or is your regret primarily for the unhappiness or stress that it creates in your life? Or the interpersonal tensions that's been created? I'm there. I would love to say that every time I feel like, no, it's sin, I'm, I'm choosing to separate from God, but I d- definitely notice those other things first. May they point me back to Christ, though. All right, let's look at that other diagram, side two. Again, just a visual way to put together what I just said. So in our restlessness and discontentment and comparison, that is for sure going to happen. We repent. We pause. We yield. We ask, what is God saying to me? In this frustrated desire, Lord, what are you saying to me? Do I need to change something? Do I need to fix something? Do I need to remember truth? Do I need to believe truth? What is God saying to me? And then what does he want you to do about it? This is how we get interchange, these two questions. Repent that we would walk forward in trust, trust of the Lord and confidence of him versus confidence of ourselves, of our opinion and how we can manage stuff. Trust who he says he is and who he says I am and what that relationship authentically looks like. Verses 6 and verses 10 in chapter 4 point out that we need to trust his, first of all, his stance on sin. That what he says is wrong and damaging, when he's saying this stuff is wrong and damaging, that we believe it is wrong and damaging. We gotta trust his stance on sin. We have to trust his grace. Trust him that he really, truly, really does forgive. That he offers mercy and that honestly, What he truly, really wants from you is relationship, unearned. We got to trust that. And then trusting that he will lift you up, as is promised in verse 10. He can give you what you don't have. He gives you distinction and power. He is the answer to those frustrated desires. 
And then instead of fallout, of quarreling and of separation and of hurt, there's relationship. Our lives flow out of relationship with him. Jesus came to us so that we would no longer be separated from God by our sin. Jesus made the way for us to live in freedom inside the dominion of God, not inside this false sense of the dominion of me. This is such, I want you to believe, I want you to see, and I want you to just be in awe that this is such a more beautiful picture than that first diagram, to live inside of God's dominion, because this stuff is true, and that's going back to where you need to trust that, and that trust does come from repentance. But in Christ, we can live in God-given power under spirit-led control. In that meekness that Wayne referenced last week, I've never thought meek was so cool as this definition. God-given power under spirit-led control. Um, James 4 just keeps coming up in my life a lot, looking at just the different passages this semester. I actually asked for this one because it's been so meaningful to me in different ways. Even um, yesterday, randomly, I was pulling out like an old journal from an old leadership training several years ago, and some post-its fell out. And I was like, oh, yeah, here's verses that I had up like in the cabin, and I was trying to remember. And they were all from James 4, which I thought was just sort of funny that God would do that. Um, but James, James 4, 7 and 8, is the life verse that Alan and I picked for our son Aaron. His middle name is James, which is after Alan's dad's middle name. But it's also for this incredible and robust and compelling book of God's word. We wanted to dedicate him with something from James. So we were kind of going through and going through and trying to find something. And we feel like these verses are not only the call for the Christian life, but our hope and our prayer for his life. A life of relationship with God choosing relationship with God over anything else, believing that being in relationship with God is the best and the only place to be. That relationship with God is hard, but it's worth fighting for. The continual and gracious call of the Lord to come back to him, to pause and listen for him, to let him speak to you, to direct you and change to change that is life-giving, that is abundant, with freedom and joy, that is beyond what you could ever, ever, ever imagine to be true. It is not just nice words, friends. It is true. I long for you to know that through your life, that this stuff is is true. I think about that a lot. This is either the biggest conspiracy of the universe, or it has to be true. This whole Christian thing. My spoken goal over both of my children is simply this, a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Sure, I have a ton of other hopes and dreams for each of them, but I want them, I want to teach them to use the measuring stick of success for their lifetime as as well as my own, and I want to model that for them, of a vibrant relationship with the Lord. That's the measuring stick of success. 
through God-given power under spirit-led control. Really feel like cliche and whatever, but what side of the paper do you want to be on, really and truly? Because we get to choose. We don't have to choose once. We, we choose five million times a day what side of the paper we want to be on. Will you pursue wholeness through brokenness with me? Take heart and pray with me. Lord, 